wonder if you've ever come across a historical mystery before. It is the stuff of documentaries, of TV series, explaining some seemingly unexplainable fact of history. I suspect that we in our modern day and in our current political environment are creating mysteries that people will be studying for many years to come. What on earth was going on then? But you didn't come to hear me talk about my view of certain mysteries politically or socially or culturally. What I want to start with this morning is to ask you what should immediately seem like a historical mystery. How did the church of Jesus Christ become the dominant force in all of world history? How did this new faith, this religion, one proclaiming the death and resurrection and salvation offered by Jesus Christ, how did it take over the world in a few hundred years? That's actually a question that serious people ask. How do we explain it? especially when, as we have seen from the testimony, its earliest proponents, its earliest advocates, its earliest missionaries, when they first heard about it, didn't even believe it. Jesus was raised from the dead. Nice try. You saw him. We don't believe you. The same 11 people that when Jesus was arrested fled from him the very greatest leader of the early church, a man named Peter, denied him after he had been arrested. What explains this new religion, this new faith, turning upside down the world? Not only that. What explains the Jewish Christians being willing to abandon their long-held religious beliefs to grab onto Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Well, what about the fact that what was central to them was their sacrificial system? They had been practicing it all the way back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. It was a central part of their law, of their religious and social and cultural identity. It was who they were as Jews. And Jesus comes along and he is raised from the dead and suddenly what is every Christian Jew doing? Sacrifices, who needs them? Synagogues? Religious feasts and festivals? What an astonishing thing. What changed? And this morning, I'd like to look at that question together by looking at the last seven verses of the book of Mark together. We have only two sermons in our study remaining. One this week, we'll focus on these seven verses. And next week, God willing, we'll focus on Mark's amen and what it means for each one of us across these 16 chapters. How did Christianity take over the Roman Empire? Imagine, imagine someone coming to a historian of this time, of Jesus' age, and speaking of this Galilean carpenter who had been crucified as a common criminal. 
and his supporters had fled from him and abandoned him. He was buried in a tomb. And suddenly, if you were to predict, fast forward several hundred years, and Christianity would still be standing, and the seemingly invincible Roman Empire would be broken. You would have said, impossible. But friends, when we look back over history, we see that is exactly what has happened. We live today in, if I can put it this way, in American empire that seems invincible. But I can promise you this. Just as Christianity outlasted and dominated the Roman Empire, if Jesus tarries, one day this American empire that we live in also likely will come to its end. And Christianity, the faith in Jesus Christ, will still be standing. Because we're going to look this morning at the subject I'm going to title, The Disciples Commissioned. The Disciples Commissioned. And we're going to see in this commissioning what we call the Great Commission. We are going to see the secret of why Christianity not only took over the world, but why it will outlast any political empire, any social, any cultural phenomenon. This is ultimately that on which we can stand firmly, no matter the age in which we're living. The disciples commissioned. I want to look at this passage in three areas as we typically do. I want to look first of all at the mission that the disciples were given in their great commission. I want to look secondly at the message they were called to proclaim. And third, I want to look at the might that was promised to them in the process. Let's start first of all by looking at the mission. And I in, took the liberty in my outline of putting the mission impossible. If you'll allow me to tap into this cultural idea, whether or not you have ever seen any part of the Mission Impossible series, I suppose it has entered into our vernacular, your mission if you choose to accept it. Your mission if you choose to accept it. I want us to look for a moment at how utterly impossible this mission was that Jesus gave his disciples. Look with me if you have your Bibles at verse 14 of Mark chapter 16. This is Jesus appearing to the eleven. They are meeting together. We see actually multiple meetings elsewhere in the gospel that Jesus had. This is just one of them that is provided. And as Jesus appears to the 11 remaining disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, the traitor, it says he upbraided them. Literally, that idea means to, to rebuke them. I mean, he had some tough words for them. Why? Because they did not believe. He upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. People had come to the disciples and said, Jesus is alive, and their reaction had been one of skepticism and unbelief. And so Jesus is rebuking them. Now look at verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Now notice this, this aspects of these, this impossible mission. Notice who he gave it to. He gave it to his disciples. 
You say, well, that's not surprising. Well, think about how they had performed in the recent past, will you? How had they been doing in that whole following Jesus thing? What grade would you give them when it came to boldness for Jesus? To effective presentation of the truths that Jesus had taught them? How about an F? Shall we recap? They're the ones who Jesus said, boys, I need you to come with me and pray with me tonight, immediately before his death. I'm, I'm saddened to the point of death. And, and he looks over, and what are they doing? <laughs> Out like a light. They go into the garden. Jesus, come, uh, a crowd comes to arrest him, and all of them run away. Peter, in front of a little servant girl uh, near the high priest's palace, denies even knowing him, cursing and swearing. I don't even know that man. Okay, well, what about after the resurrection? Well, what did we just say? People are coming around and telling them Jesus has been resurrected, and what, are they, what is it greeted by? Skepticism, unbelief. Thomas, in fact, one of the 12, saying, unless, unless I actually feel the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe. Yeah, that's the kind of people you build a movement on, right, folks? Those are the kinds of people you send to take over the world. No. It's astonishing. And what does he tell this unreliable, ragtag group of followers, many of them fishermen from Galilee, not even from the social or elite center of that day? What does he tell them to do? Go and preach the gospel in the entire world, across the entire world. And not just to the entire world, preach it to everyone and every creature, every person. That's your job, to go preach to everyone, everywhere. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says to preach? He says who you're preaching to he said, or who, who is the message to? To whom are you giving that message? To everyone. And what are you to be doing? You are to go and preach. The word preach here has the idea of being a herald. Now, we don't do this a lot in our day, but I just want you to think back to Jesus' day. I want you to imagine this, this broad Roman Empire. All these kinds of nations and states and cities that were captured by Rome, that were taken over. And so now Rome is governing them. I want you to imagine that one day a soldier band comes into your town and someone stands in the city square and says, I have an announcement from Rome, from Caesar himself. Do you know what that would be? A herald. And do you know what everyone in that day would have done? Let's see what Caesar says. Why? Because Caesar was the boss. Caesar was Lord. And so what did they do? They gathered around and they listened to someone preach, herald, proclaim. And now Jesus says to this ragtag group of followers, I want you to go out and be a herald to everyone everywhere. Now, does that feel to you like Jesus was setting them up for success? 
Does it feel to you like these guys who had been so unreliable, Jesus was really putting them in exactly the position they needed to succeed? I'll tell you, not to me. That sounds crazy. It sounds truly like mission impossible. But it gets even more interesting, doesn't it? Let's keep on going. Let's talk secondly about the message. He said unto them, verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So what message were they carrying? They were carrying the message that he calls the gospel. Now, I want us to make sure that we are on very stable ground this morning about what the gospel is. Because a verse we use all the time at this church, you see it uh, paraphrased on our sign out front, is that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? You know, it would be a good thing for you just to sit back and think for a moment. If I told you, what does it mean to preach the gospel to someone? For you to step back and think, huh, what does that mean to, to give someone the gospel? Well, you may know this. The word gospel means good news. Okay, you need to give the good news, Jesus said. You need to tell people the good news. Okay, well, everyone likes good news, right? So what's the good news? Well, if you remember, Mark has been interested in the gospel since the very beginning of his, of his book. In fact, I want to prove it to you because it'll help us understand and be on stable ground of what the gospel is that Jesus told his disciples, go and proclaim it. So go back to Mark chapter 1. Hold your finger in Mark 16 if you have a hard uh, text Bible. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'm going to invite all of us to read verse 1 together out loud. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. And will you read it together with me out loud? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of what? The gospel. Okay, so this book has been about the gospel the whole time. Mark's saying, I'm going to begin telling you the good news about Jesus Christ. So here's one thing that we have to be absolutely settled on when it comes to the gospel. It's about a person. It's about a person. Let that sink in. The gospel is about a person. Jesus Christ. Now, do you know this is where you can immediately tell when someone's going wrong? Do you know if you were to turn on your TV and you were to flip to a station that is calling itself a Christian station, you would hear all kinds of sermons coming out. And do you know one of the things that you'll notice when listening to those sermons? They don't talk about Jesus very much. But do you know what they talk about? All the things that Jesus can do for you. You know, follow Jesus and, 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 and you'll become prosperous. Follow Jesus and you'll get peace. Follow Jesus and you'll get joy. Follow Jesus, sign up on the Jesus card and you'll get all these benefits. They're nothing more than marketers. There's no, they're nothing more than salespeople. But listen, how often are they talking about Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is? You know, when you hear someone on your television or on your radio or on your YouTube channel, and they want to talk a lot about what Jesus does for you, but they don't talk much about who he is, turn him off. He's not worth listening to you. He's not preaching the gospel. Because it may be very well true, friends, Jesus does wonderful things for you. Oh, that's true. 
But the center of the gospel is not what he does. It's who he is. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, friends, if you look back at the history of the early church, what did they do? They preached Christ. They said who he was, and they stood on it, and they were willing to die for it. In fact, you can see this throughout uh, the various accounts, uh, missionary accounts. I love the one about Philip. Philip meets this very high-ranking Ethiopian official from Africa, and he's going back to Africa from worshiping at Jerusalem, and God brings Philip right alongside him, and this man is reading the book of Isaiah, and he's trying to figure it out. He's puzzling, what's going on here? And Philip runs to him, and he sits beside me. You need someone to explain it to you? And do you know what the scripture records in Acts chapter 8? Beginning at the same passage, he preached Jesus to him. He preached Jesus. What is the gospel? It's who Jesus is. And let's make sure that when we're proclaiming the gospel to people, don't focus on what Jesus, everything he can do for them. Oh, that may be part of the story. But focus on who he is. Focus on the testimony of the Bible about what he, what he came to do as Jesus, the anointed one of God. He's a person. Not just that. The core of this gospel is that, as we just read, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what was that phrase? Next phrase, do you remember it? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the what? The Son of God. Okay, so it's not just about the person, it's also about the proof the proof of his identity, the Son of God. Now, why do I go here? It's because when Mark tells the gospel, he wants to make sure we understand that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. Listen to this from Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1. This may help you. In verse 3 to 4, Paul says that what he is speaking of is his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried in a tomb, that he rose from the dead, and that he was seen by many people to be alive. You say, why is that the gospel? Because it proves that Jesus is who he said he was. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, those four things I just told you, that's the gospel. It is the stamp, God's stamp of legitimacy, proving that Jesus is who he said he is. So what is the gospel that they were to go proclaim? A person, Jesus Christ. A proof he is the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead and it validates who he said to be. But it's one more thing. It's God's purpose in the world. That is the gospel. The person of Jesus Christ. The proof that he is who God said he is. And the purpose that he came to accomplish. Go back to Mark chapter 1 again. If your finger is there perhaps for just one more moment. Look at what Jesus came preaching about the gospel. If you'll look with me in verse 14 of chapter 1. Notice what Mark says. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee 
Preaching the gospel of what? Of the kingdom of God. Do you know that's the gospel too? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is this. It's that God has intervened in the world. He's broken into the middle of our corrupted world. And he says, do you know what? I'm setting up my kingdom in this world. I'm setting up the place where I reign and where I rule. And the kingdom of God is being built right now in the hearts of human beings, like you and like me, where Jesus is king. And one day, when Jesus returns again, that kingdom will be set up visibly for all to see that Jesus is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. Friends, do you know that's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus is who he said he is as proved to be by the facts of his death, burial, resurrection, and his uh, eyewitness testimony of others. And it is God's purpose in the world that he is gathering out of the world a special people for himself to be members of his kingdom. And one day his kingdom will be established in a new heaven and in a new earth forever. And he will reign. That's the gospel. Now friends, if I were to ask you how often are you proclaiming that gospel to others? What would you say? That's the gospel that we preach here at Straight Gate Church. That's the gospel that I try to preach when I get up in this pulpit. And I hope this is the gospel that you are realizing is yours to proclaim. Who Jesus is. What he came to do. And what his kingdom means for all who will come to him. That is the core of the message. He, they were to preach the gospel. But let's keep on going. Will you notice with me in verse 16? Jesus says, go and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And that word damned is the word that is, that is um, translated everywhere else in Mark, condemned. It's the same word. It's the same idea. To be condemned. So here's what Jesus is saying. Not only is there a core of this message, this message is, is, is confronting everyone with a choice. The choice is between being saved, being delivered, being rescued, and being condemned in a place that the Bible calls hell. Salvation, condemnation, life, death. Now, I want to make the simple point today that, friends, just because this message is controversial today, just because this message is not accepted very well in a postmodern culture, doesn't believe, doesn't mean it's not the word of God. And we stand on it. We believe, just as our theme verse is as a church, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And broad is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are only two gates and there are only two ways. One leads to life and one leads to eternal death. This is why the disciples from the earliest days 
proclaimed this. This is from Acts chapter 4. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name that offers salvation than Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus calls on us to believe and to go to proclaim to a world. There is salvation and life. There is condemnation and death. And notice what he presents as the condition. What leads to salvation? He that believeth and is baptized is saved. He that believeth not is damned or condemned. The result is death. Now let's pause on that condition for just a moment, shall we? Because this passage has been used to teach that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. This passage has been presented, in fact, to suggest that baptism is salvation. That baptism is what regenerates you. It is what saves you. And I want us to look at this text and actually ask, is that what it's teaching? Because the answer is no. I don't believe that that at all is what it's teaching. Let's just take it for what it says. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Okay? That's the one condition. What's the other half of the condition? But he that believeth not shall be damned. What is missing from the second half? Baptism. Now pause there for just a moment. What's he, what do you think that means? Well, if Jesus wanted us to believe that baptism saves you, do you know what he would have put in that? I think he would have put in that second condition. Baptism. He that is not baptized is condemned, is damned. Is that what he said? No. Do you know what that means? That means if you are baptized and you don't believe, are you saved or are you condemned? You're condemned. Because what does he say? He that believes not is condemned. That's the only condition. Do you want to avoid condemnation? Then the problem is not believing. It's not about not being baptized. Let me say that one more time. From this passage, what Jesus is saying is, if you are baptized and you don't believe, you are still condemned. Friends, baptism does not save you. Baptism does not wash your sins away. Baptism does not regenerate you. And Jesus is not teaching anything different here. So what does he say then? If it's only a lack of belief that condemns you, he that believeth not is condemned. Why does Jesus say, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Well, we should make sure of a couple things. One, we shouldn't say anything that Jesus is not saying. And we should say everything that Jesus is saying. Okay? Here's what I think Jesus is trying to tell us. First of all, the central issue is whether you believe. It's whether you believe. Go back to John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That whosoever believeth, believeth. And over and over and over again throughout the biblical record, Jesus says it the same way. Do you want to be saved? Then you need to believe. Oh, friends, we stand firmly on the truth that it is faith alone that saves and nothing else. You are saved 
by believing. And I think, again, you can see from the lack of the qualifier of baptism in the next clause, Jesus is saying the same thing here. So then why does he say, believe and is baptized? Well, let's, listen, let's, let's, let's think about that for just a minute. He is telling us what baptism is. You say, what do you mean by that? He is telling us that baptism is something that flows from what? From belief. You see? He is saying, if you believe, and he is assuming what will flow from that faith, you will be baptized. If you believe and are baptized, you are saved. And I take from that this. For one, Jesus is giving us the right order. Do you, are you baptized before you believe? Or are you baptized after you believe? He said it. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. This is why at Straight Gate we believe and teach that a baptism, a biblical baptism, is a believer's baptism. It is a baptism by someone who has placed their own faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We do not perform infant baptisms. We do not perform baptisms for those who are not coming with their own testimony of faith. A baptism is the external symbol. It is the external sign of something that has already happened on the inside. Right? You can't see someone's faith. You can't see someone's repentance on the inside. But do you know what you can see? You can see them going up and getting into a pool of water and getting dunked and saying, I believe. You can see that. And that is exactly to us what biblical baptism is. But I also say this, friends. We shouldn't say what Jesus didn't say, but we should say what he did say. Say, what do you mean by that? I would say this, friend. If, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, but you are not willing to be baptized, I would not have any assurance that you are a true member of the body of Christ. In other words, what I mean by that is what Jesus is again expecting is that when you believe, you will be baptized. You will obey him in that very first step of following him as his disciple. And if someone were to say to me, I believe in Jesus, and I said, okay, let's get baptized just like he commanded. Well, never mind. You know what I would say? Friend, are you sure you believe? Are you sure he's your Lord? Are you sure he's your savior? You believe in him, but you're not willing to do the first step of what he commanded? And so my encouragement to you today, friend, is that you have never been baptized on the profession of your faith, your own personal faith in Jesus Christ. What's holding you back? What's stopping you from saying, you know what Jesus said? He that believes and is baptized is saved. You know what? Let's go. Let's follow him as a symbol as uh, an outworking of the faith that I profess. I hope that helps. If you have any other questions about that, we can talk about it in more detail. But there's nothing holding you back from being baptized. And I would love to move forward with that process as soon as you are willing. So notice here, the condition, believe. That is the great choice that is confronting everyone to whom we bring this gospel of who Jesus is and what he means. So let's start, look, look first, as we said, at the mission 
this impossible mission to these 11 uh, 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 people who had failed so miserably in their disciple calling today. The, the message that they are called to proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ, confronting everyone with a choice. Will you believe? And finally, let's look at the might that is described for us here. Will you notice with me in verse 17? Look what Jesus says to them. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils or demons. They shall speak with new tongues, literally with new languages. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following, Amen. Some of you have really been looking forward for me getting to these verses, haven't you? He said, I just can't wait till Pastor Peter talks about handling serpents and drinking deadly things. Okay, we're going to get there. But here's one of the things we always need to do when we look at difficult passages, things we don't always immediately understand. You have to understand the main point. Don't get sidetracked on the side points until you know for sure you get the main point. Okay, so let's start there. What's the main point of these verses? What's the main point? Not the side points. What's the main theme? The main idea? It's that Jesus sent them to preach and said, you leave the power to me. Do you see that here? Do you see? Let's see if we can see that that's the main point here. Look at what he said, verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Okay, you're going into all the world preaching and telling people that they are going to believe. And what are the signs that are going to follow that? These miraculous signs. Okay, keep on going. Verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Pause right there. What does that mean? It means literally what it says. That Jesus in a resurrected body was ascended straight up to heaven where God dwells. You say, how does that work? I have no idea other than that there is a real sense, friends, that somewhere Jesus is in a resurrection, real body in God's presence at his right hand of power. The picture is, just like for most of us, our right hand is our powerful hand. It is our dominant hand. It is the hand through which we work and accomplish our tasks. God's right hand is the the picture of his power, of his authority, of what he works. And Jesus is, it is said, seated on that right hand as his powerful, working, divine source. Jesus has authority. He has power. He has God's power to work. Now keep on going. Look at verse 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere. Now read this next clause with me, will you? Out loud. The Lord working with them. Friends, that's the main point. 
The main point of these verses is that Jesus was working with them. That is what explains these signs. That's what explains the confirmation of the word that was following. It was that Jesus was working with them. That's the main point. Okay. So now that we have the main point, this is about Jesus sitting on the right hand of God, confirming the word by working with them. Let's try to understand what the purpose of the signs was. What does Jesus say the purpose of this is going to be? Well, let's look at the description here. Verse 20. And they went forth and preached everywhere, just like Jesus said, the Lord working with them, and the Lord confirming the word with signs following. Okay, so what's the order here that is being described? Do the signs come first, or do the signs come after? In verse 20, after. What comes first? The word. The preaching of the word. And these signs to prove the word or to confirm that the word is true came after. You say, What's, wh what are you getting at? I'm saying that's exactly what Jesus had promised. You go preach the word and I will take care to prove it. I will take care to confirm it. To show unbelieving people that it is real. Okay, that's the purpose of these signs. And friends, now go back to the signs themselves. Do you want to see how Jesus' words are coming to pass? Look at in verse 17, will you? Again. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. When we look in the book of Acts, do we see anyone casting out demons? All over the place. God's word was being confirmed by the devil being defeated. We see it in Acts 5 and verse 16. Acts 8 and verse 7. Acts 16 and verse 18. Acts 19 and verse 12. The devil was being defeated as a sign that Jesus' word, the gospel, was true. Keep on going. They shall speak with new tongues. Do we see anywhere in the book of Acts in which people sp um, spoke with new tongues or new languages? Even ones they hadn't learned. Yes, we see it in Acts chapter 2. Just like Jesus had prophesied, the word that was being preached was being confirmed. What about verse 18? They shall take up serpents, snakes, is that anywhere in our New Testament record? It is. In Acts chapter 28, Paul is on a new island that had never heard the gospel before, and a viper jumps out of the fire where they were building a fire on this cold day, and it latched onto his hand, a poisonous snake. And all the people of the land looked at him and said, ah, this guy was a prisoner. He's dead now. The, you know, the, the, the Roman government may not have been able to get him, but God's going to get him now. And he shook off the snake into, into the fire, and they watched him. Well, he's going to fall over dead any minute now, and he never did. And so do you know what the Bible says? They changed their mind and decided he must be a god. 
What is that? God confirming the word? That's my guy. That's my servant. Okay, here's the hardest one. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. You know, actually, we have no example in Acts that is provided to us. There appears to be an example from history that could be provided of someone being forced to drink a deadly kind of concoction and it not injuring them, not killing them. We don't have something specifically in the gospel record here. But the next one, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. We see healing all throughout the, gospel, uh, the, the book of Acts. Okay, so, so, so what should we take from this? Jesus saying these signs shall follow. Well, one thing we take from it is that Jesus was making a promise for protection and power that he brought to pass, that he fulfilled in their lives. This kind of thing exactly did happen, just like he said. But you say, okay, well, what about us? What should we take from it? Do you know, friends, on this Sunday, almost certainly, there is a church down in Appalachia right now that is handling poisonous snakes. They may even be drinking poison this morning. You could go and research this phenomenon. It's gone on and off throughout the church. I was just reading an article about it this week of a, a pastor who continues to handle, to, to, to handle snakes and drink poison as a sign of his faith even though I think it was his dad, or no, it was his brother and I think his father who were killed in that same way as pastors by being bitten by snakes, poisonous snakes. He continues on doing it. Let me just say clearly, this is craziness. Now, how do we know it's craziness? Because it, it, it's of the devil. It, you, do you remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil and the devil took him up onto the very pinnacle of the temple and said, Jesus, jump off. Jump off, and your angels, your angels will catch you before you hit the ground. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, thou shalt not tempt, literally test, the Lord your God. You know this applies perfectly to this. Never once does Jesus, in this passage, command you to go pick up deadly things. Never once does he command you to go drink poison to prove how spiritual you are. Never once. And anyone who would go and, and, and kind of take these extrinsically dangerous activities just to prove how much faith they have is simply doing exactly what the devil tempted Jesus with, putting God to the test. That was never the purpose, and it is never to be the way we apply this passage. What is the way we apply this passage? It is simply this. When we go proclaim the word of God, when we go take the gospel to the nations, we can count on who to be protecting us and empowering us. Jesus himself, seated at the right hand of God. And friend, you may never be called on to cast a devil from someone. You may never be involved in healing, in someone's miraculous healing. You may never require divine protection in this kind of extra dangerous activity. But do you know you can go with the exact same confidence and conviction that these disciples went with? That when you go to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in whatever way he calls you, Jesus himself at the right hand of God will be working with you. Now if you have any questions about whether miraculous signs continue on today. I preached a whole sermon series about that. You can go listen to it. I don't even know how many sermons it was now. If you have any curiosity about that, 
But I will tell you this, I believe that God is still confirming his word. Um, you can talk to um, Suresh Joshua. Many of you know him, Abby Sims' father. He knew a, a dear brother, a man named Daryl Champlin, a missionary uh, to, uh, to Suriname. And when Daryl Champlin came to Suriname, he was proclaiming the gospel of Christ and he was challenged by a witch doctor. There, truly a witch doctor who was attempting to keep the people in bondage. And he challenged this new missionary. He said, you come and walk on burning coals. You walk on burning coals. And he was, and he, he was issuing a public challenge to say, your God is not as powerful as my God is. And Suresh Joshua tells the story of this man he knew so well who prayed about it and said, you know what? I have to, I, I have to show that my God is real. And he went and he walked across those burning coals with not one burn to, to his feet. Now, again, was this a man who was saying, hey, look at me, we're going to have a coal walking service. No, it was simply this. It was God confirming his word as it was being proclaimed and as it was being preached. And I encourage you, friend, to have that same confidence, that same conviction, not to pull extra dangerous stunts, not to try to be some person out making a name for yourself, a crowd, by doing these things, but just to have the simple confidence that as we go out to proclaim the word of God, he is going to be working with us. So let's step back to try to answer the question that we started with today. What explains the gospel of Jesus Christ taking over the entire world, starting from these handful of people who had failed so, 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 so poorly in their disciple task, now being sent out to go to the entire world and having the world turned upside down. It was not in the people themselves. They were weak. They were frail. They failed over and over again, just like you and I do. But what they were given is they were given a message that they believed with all their heart. And they were assured that when they went, they would have the might, the power of Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of God. And what that means for each of us this week, as we leave this church today and as we go out into a world that is dying without Jesus Christ. We are confronted with the same call. You go too. You preach. Oh, I don't mean from this pulpit necessarily. I mean you just proclaim who Jesus is. What he came to do. What are the proofs of his uh, claim to be the son of God? And what God is doing through him in this world. And when you go to do that, walk in the same confidence that the same Jesus who is seated on the right hand of God and confirmed his word to these 11 people who heard his commission for the first time will confirm his word in all the ways and to all the people whom he sees fit. Let's pray.